Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Last time we were together, we talked quite a bit about some of the crazy things that are being discovered on the LDS side of the restoration about Brigham and polygamy and uh, how to know what sources you can trust and people that are having testimonies that that wasn't um, maybe Joseph Smith, but that Brigham Young has there's good reason to see that he was actually the originator of that. I do want to say, as we discuss those things, um, it's not a it is important. I can't say it's not important to me, but in the overall scheme of things, if I did discover Joseph was involved in polygamy, Corey, I don't, uh, that doesn't change my opinion of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, me too. Uh, what, where it is really important to me is his mindset throughout the birthing and the growing of the restoration. And while different um, revelations and things are being given, if the prophet of the church was involved in those kind of things, uh, where was his mind with God, and what is there there to trust? I certainly believe the record of the Nephites and the Book of Mormon uh, written years ago was by very humble and loving men and people that were seeing angels and understood the Spirit of God, and the humility was very evident in them. Uh, some of those quotes I read last time, uh, especially the one where Joseph that we use a lot to defend Joseph, where he says, I can only find one wife, uh, he's really boasting quite a bit in that same sermon about who he is. Now, if that's all really true, uh, that's that's not the humility I find in the Book of Mormon. Uh, so I trust the Book of Mormon. But it is important to me to know that, you know, it, it makes me feel better, of course, like most of our listeners, to see that Joseph perhaps was really fighting against polygamy and maybe even led to his death. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But all that being said, the Book of Mormon is so powerful to do a mighty work. And Corey, you had a testimony not not long ago where you were studying one morning and you left your Book of Mormon open on your breakfast table. And I'll just let you tell. Yeah, it's, share it's that. A, kind of a, just a happy moment and short story. But uh, left my Book of Mormon open one weekend when my son, who's uh, just graduated from college, and his roommate were, were home for the weekend, and he had not brought his roommate home in the in the years he had been at college, even though we knew him and we had seen him down there at school. Anyhow, um, my son's roommate is a uh, student, and he had a minor in religion, so you know he's been exposed to Christian ideas, Hindu ideas, Buddhist ideas. And I was out for a while, and when I got back, he had this question immediately. He said, "Hey, is Mosiah one of the prophets?" You know, because he had never really. I, I'm sure he'd heard of the Book of Mormon, but he'd never read it. And that was the book uh, in chapter 8 of Mosiah that was open. Anyhow, I said, yeah, he was a, an American prophet. And, and that led to a really interesting conversation, which ended with me giving him a Book of Mormon, which he happily accepted. But what what the happy part of it was, was that he was so open in his questions. He's like, okay, so what does the Book of Mormon teach about 
And then he would have a question like, you know, predestination or some people call it determinism, you know. And I'm like, well, the Book of Mormon teaches that, you know, all men are free, that no one is determined. Well, what does it teach about God? Is it one God or three mm-hmm. gods or multiple gods? And it's like, it teaches one God. And he's like, he's, he's loving this stuff. He's, he's loving how clear it is. And it made me, and, and he asked a couple questions that, I, that were really good. He said, well, what does your church believe about God? And I'm like, you know, you could ask 50 people in the church and might get 50 different responses. But the Book of Mormon teaches. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was so refreshing to be able to speak with clarity to someone about questions they had that were clearly answered in the Book of Mormon. And a, and a few years ago, honestly, I don't think I could have answered with at least the clarity I thought I was giving. But in our recent study, I felt just empowered to share these things that were uh, through the whole range of things that we've discussed on the podcast. And he listened and he liked it and he enjoyed it. And I felt that, you know, it's a, I don't know, an indicator, I guess, for us that there are people out there who are hungry to know. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because I threw I threw this out. I said, you know, the, the problem is that people read the Book of Mormon, and then they'll hear about the conduct of someone, and usually it's Joseph Smith, and then they'll say, yeah, the Book of Mormon says this, but Joseph Smith said something else. And I said, you know, that that that's the problem with you know humanity is that we if we don't agree with something, we'll want to assail it or find ways to knock it down. And And I thought he would, like, be kind of taken back, like, oh, maybe I can't trust the Book of Mormon. But instead he comes back, he said, no, that's it throughout every religion. You know, people just try to assail the prophet or assail this guy or whatever and, and find flaws in him so that they don't have to believe. And he said, no, I'm way beyond that. You know, I just want to, I just want to read this. And, and that was refreshing, too. And that may have simply come from the fact that he's examined other religions and, and compared them all. But it, it, uh, it was a great conversation. And like I said, he, he took a Book of Mormon. I, I left my number and email and even re- restored gospel website in there if he had other questions. So hopefully it leads to good things. That uh, that question is so, uh, I love that when he says, what does your church believe about God? Yeah. Well, that's that's so, <laughs> that's so poignant that you brought out. Well, I could tell you what my church believes. What, what we're talking about really when we say the church is the people that attend yeah. a, a, a given gathering. There's certain doctrines that a church puts out like, uh, well, I, does uh, you said one time you quoted the uh, is it the Articles of Faith or the Epitome of Faith on or or just a statement on a lot of restoration websites? Yeah. Uh-huh. We believe in is it from from the websites right? two personages. God yeah, is two personages: the yeah. Father and the Son. And, yeah, um, you could get a variety of answers. And one thing that we've been, um, that you've been clear on in your teaching, you've done a couple classes on it, is just what does the Book of Mormon teach about God mm. um, and and who he is and how uh, he is one and how the Israelites, all the way back to the, I'm going to say the word wrong, the Shema, Shema, yeah, the Lord our God is one God, mm-hmm. that that's their understanding so much so that uh, when Jesus claimed to be uh, God and and having all the power and authority, they killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go back to what the Book of Mormon teaches, that's really important because uh, let's say he was talking to a uh, an LDS uh, member that had their Book of Mormon open to Messiah, and he asked that question, <laughs> right? Yeah. What does your well, what does your church believe about God? He's going to get a completely different answer, not based on the Book of Mormon, but based on the teachings of that faction of the Restoration, 
well, we believe that there's one God that we know about, but that he's the only one that saves us, but he mm-hmm. has also a God and he has, and you know, and then his, mm-hmm. which, good point. Uh, which I'm curious on some of these uh, LDS people that are coming to this awesome realization that Brigham Young changed some doctrines in the church and rewrote Joseph's journals and made them suit all of his things that he wanted to, to have control over that um, he, they still as much as, as denounced polygamy as coming from Brigham and not Joseph. But I think some of them, from what I've heard, would still say that there's uh, polygamy in heaven, that there's still eternal progression. Maybe they think God just has one mother in heaven, but there's still this eternal progression. And I'm sure they're, they're all on different paths. And uh, so, yeah, it's hard to read the Book of Mormon clearly when these paradigms from the culture of the religion are so heavy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what we see in, in all religions. But it's true in the RLDS church. It's true in the, in the LDS. The, the problem comes back to, you know, we, we trust history to interweave itself correctly into the scriptures, and our history doesn't. And then what makes it more complex is that some of our history on very important things has been tampered with. And we, we've already discussed the Grove experience. I mean, if you talk about the story of Joseph Smith, that that's like this point of singularity. Okay, it begins in this grove and God reveals himself, but then you get this story of, well, there was two personages and there was, you know, here here's my son, listen to him. And and if that didn't happen that way, you know, it's like you, you back all the way up. <clears throat> the, the refreshing thing is if it happened the way Joseph's original diary says, it was exactly as the Book of Mormon teaches. Mm-hmm. It was exactly the brother Jared's revelation, which was, you know, in in the words of the Book of Mormon, he said, <clears throat> people have experiences, but uh, no one had any greater than the brother of Jared. I mean, this is as big as it gets. And, but that, that revelation that the creator, the Elohim, the great God, became a man who, rather than suffering, you know, to, uh, you know, he, he suffered people to spit on him, you know, and, and, and suffered temptation but didn't yield to the temptation. And all these things was not just an appointed person of an array of people in heaven. In, in a progression to become like the one that sent him. Exactly. It was, no, the only one. That's, yeah, that's an important um, distinction. And, uh, yeah, if, yeah, I, there's also other doctrine in our church that uh, that has been removed from the doctrine of covenants. Has been removed from the uh, the LDS doctrine of covenant. Well, it was removed earlier on, and that's the lectures on faith, which which very clearly state that uh, that God is three but one. It says things that we don't maybe hold to. It says that Jesus is the fullness of God, and that Jesus has a body or a tabernacle, and that the Father is a spirit. So. Uh, it's it's a very but but what I like about that is it says Jesus has the fullness, and so then you talk about eternal life as you can be with Jesus but not the fullness of God, not the fullness of the Father. Well, that's incongruent with what they wrote in the lectures of faith. If Jesus is the fullness of God, uh, with with uh, flesh and blood because he took on flesh and blood, but he's still the fullness of God, then. How can you be with Jesus in eternity because you're you're you know in a terrestrial world because you aren't suited to be with the fullness of the Father? Right. So, and that's 
that was uh, uh, oh, removed conveniently from the Doctrine and Covenants because of the, I believe, probably in part due to the progression of uh, thinking in who God was throughout the Restoration as it went along. Yeah, to me, and you know that that was kind of it for the the roommate story. Even though we we had a long conversation about multiple things, but they, it all ended good. But I think, and, and I'm over, oversimplifying this, but but our whole church history, you know, went astray when we started adopting the ideas of men that sounded like scripture or sounded like explanations of the scripture, and then we hold on to those more than what the scriptures say. And I mean, you know. Right. Our, our LDS people struggle with that because they've just kind of let go of a lot of things. But LDS people especially, you know, zero in on these ideas that came from men who are all polygamous, and polygamy is wrong. There's there's no justification for it. Um, the things that happened in the 1800s were, were not of God. They weren't directed by God. They were cleverly disguised by man to seem like it was God. Mm-hmm. And, and that might be a point of contention for some. But it's the truth, and this whole, you know, we're, we're judged by the words we're given, and the words we're given is one man, one one wife. You know, that's that's the bottom line. That's another reason that uh, I really like this uh, idea that the Book of Mormon is, is, I think it's written in church history. I don't remember who said it, but you'll, be, you'll get closer to God by reading this book than any other book on, on the planet, uh, whether that was Joseph or Brigham, I don't remember. Um but the reason I think that's true, at least in the restoration, is let's say you had, let's say you had your doctrine and covenants open on the table, and and this friend read something in there and said, well, what is your, what is this book? You know, what does your church believe about this book? Well, ours is is different than the LDS, and that's because we accept different revelations as being from God or not being from God. We've removed some of them that didn't fit our, uh, that we didn't believe uh, was in. Congruent was congruent with previous scripture, such as baptizing your dead. And Hamoziah very clearly states that you know little children are, if they die, they go to heaven because mm. um, they they didn't have a chance to repent and, and to know the gospel. They're covered by the atonement. Uh, and why would someone who didn't have the law need to be have a baptism done for them mm. uh, unless there's mm-hmm. something we don't clearly get? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. People who died without the law, I mean, God's merciful. The, the atonement of Jesus covers their sin. And and to, to somehow <laughs> mix in what we do for people who've repented on this side of the veil with that is just, again, another confusion of me. Right. But the Book of Mormon, when you, when, when you go back to your response, well, let's talk about not what my church would say God, you know, not what my church believes God is, not what the LDS believe God is, not what our Doctrine and Covenants says God is, but what the Book of Mormon says God mm-hmm. is. And that's that's really neat. Uh, also, I wanted to bring up, we didn't get to this last time, in the title page of the Book of Mormon, it says its purpose, one of its purposes, is to the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. And that we throughout the Book of Mormon, they're recording these things on metal so that they can't be changed or blow away over time or be destroyed because of the prayers of people in there, that their posterity would come to a knowledge of Jesus and the covenants. Mm. That's throughout the Book of Mormon. The, the title page is just a summary of that. Yeah. So one thing, Corey, I've always thought, and it's the one little 
thing in the back of my mind that says, well, if this truly is of God, then it's going to go to the Jews or the house of Joseph specifically, and uh, it's going to help convince them that Jesus is the Christ. But I, I saw that as these people that are deep embedded in the Jewish religion you know, Jesus was a, was not a prophet of God, and all of a sudden they read the Book of Mormon like, oh, there's right, another, right, he right. was. However, you came across a verse, and it was really neat, that it just, you said he kind of jumped out at you that morning. What what, what yeah. chapter was, where was that? Oh, man, I was going to hope that you had it. Okay, I, well, I can go back and text. No, it's it's you, all good. You got it? I'll, I'll find it. Oh, no. Uh, uh, so You know uh, the words. Stop the tape. Ah. Hey, no. I'll, I'll, you know what? I will for, for <laughs> okay. the sake of editing later. Hang on a second. All right, everyone, we're stopping the tape. <laughs> And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> Took no time at all, like a no. second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's Second Nephi eleven twenty seven, And that, to me, you know, if you're looking for, okay, what happens first, A, B, and C, and then what happens next, this scripture seems to indicate. Well, Why don't you start in 25, too? Okay. Just to Second Nephi eleven twenty five. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered among all nations. Yea, and also Babylon, which shall be destroyed. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered by other nations. And after that, they have been scattered, and the Lord God hath scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations. Yea, even down from generation to generation, until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ. That's an interesting word, mm-hmm. persuaded. Until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement, which is infinite for all mankind. So here's the first indication that, okay, then they're going to begin to believe. Um, And when that day shall come, that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands and look not forward anymore for another Messiah. And then at that time, the day will come that it must be expedient that they should believe these things. So I've, these things is all in the context of chapter 11, which is all in the context of the writings of the Nephites. Right. And if you read on, it'll... Yeah, go ahead. Well, it, like down in 30, Wherefore he shall bring forth his words unto them, which words shall judge them at the last day, for right. they are given them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who is rejected by them. Right. And what it, I was just going to say, and, and this is the marvelous work and the wonder that's you know, yeah. to come forth. So it, I'm piecing it together in my mind, in my perfect little uh, history, if God would just let me write the end of the story. I've got it all laid out in my mind, you know. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I know better. But I see this as... Well, to be honest, I look at One for Israel, and I see millions and millions of views of their videos and their testimonies of of Israel and Jewish and Arab people having firsthand experiences with Jesus and coming to Jesus, even at the expense of losing their families and their inheritance and their homes, and, and it's powerful, and it's like, well... And it's, it's real. And it's real. <laughs> and Jesus, it's like, well, Jesus seems to be doing this work without the Book of Mormon. So right. why was the Book of Mormon brought forth? So what I, what I see or what I wonder is this group of people that are believing in Christ, as it says, when, when they shall be, start to believe in Christ, then these things will help them that somehow that maybe they, they, they stumble upon or they come to the Book of Mormon 
And that added testimony is so convincing that that those that are already starting to believe in Christ use that to maybe convert more. I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have thoughts on that, but that's... No, I, I, I like, you know, the fact that you're bringing this out because I, th- I felt the same thing. It's like, you know, you see this strong, coordinated, powerful movement to, to do nothing. To It's not bringing honor to the people who are doing it. They're just simply trying to honor Jesus. It's legitimate. It's pure. And and it's real, and it's what the Book of Mormon teaches will happen first. No, they will come to a knowledge of Jesus yeah. Christ. And then the Book of Mormon comes around, and it's like, hey, and by the way, here's another testimony. But again, I've, and this is this is the struggle in the Restoration, is that somehow we felt, as you indicated, that, oh, we've we've got to lead the way, or we're commissioned, or we're going to lead the way. We're the ones who are going to do this, and, that's, and God's waiting on us, you know, this mm-hmm. idea that somehow there's, Oh well, God's got to wait for us to do it, and it's not that at all. And I have a feeling, like so many things, when it, when the Book of Mormon does kind of present itself to them, it'll be through humble, simple means. You know, I, I almost picture the the end of the Jaredite civilization overlaps with the Nephite civilization, not through this great dramatic political procession and parades and everything. It's it's one you know they find these little plates in the in the hole in the ground. I mean you know or somewhere they find these plates as they're finding dead bones, and one person from their civilization ends up surviving and lives with them for a few <laughs> months. Uh, it, it could be something very very humble and simple. I think when the Book of Mormon goes to them, and this is really the point, the Gentiles aren't going to get any real credit for this. Yeah, <clears throat> when you look at. Uh Oh, is it the guy that started the website? Or he's certainly one that speaks the most. Uh, that was praying in his room and had and met Yeshua yeah. in his room on his knees. Uh, he didn't believe really in sin even when he was in college, um, and so it's like Jesus came to this man and convinced him, and now he's doing a work that's convincing millions. Yeah, and then you look at this. Scripture and, and really saints pray about this scripture, Second Nephi eleven, twenty seven. And when that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his names with pure hearts and clean hands, and look not forward any more for another Messiah, and then at that time, at that time, the day will come that it must needs be expedient they should believe these things. Exactly. Expedient. It must be necessary. It must be part of the plan. It yeah. must be part of, of prophecy and the history of the world. That It must be that they believe in these things. I think we very well could be seeing this day fulfilled right now with the invention of the Internet and YouTube. And I, I, in the grand scheme of the world, I guess one or two million people isn't that big, and I don't know what the percentage of Christians that believe, you know, Jewish Christians are right now. I'm sure it's still really small, 1% to 2% maybe. I yeah, don't I heard a number like there's like 30,000, but there's like 9 million people in Israel, something like that. So yeah, so small number. a lot of these views, uh, a lot, well, it tracks the number of views. That can mean a lot of things, but it's it's a huge number. When I say views, people watching these testimonies of Jesus. That could be from all over the world. That could be something that is starting to gather the hearts of the Israel, of Joseph, 
us back to Jesus, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a physical gathering right now, certainly, you, as we've talked about, it's always a, a spiritual gathering, a spiritual coming back to God at the same time, if not first. And Yeah, I, 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 it, this gives me confidence that, you know, it's exactly as the Scripture says. You know, it's like it's not this thing happening, oh, no, we're behind, let's scramble to get ahead. It's like, no, this is exactly what God said. And it's the first time in history you've got this groundswell, seem, seemingly real growth of the word from Jesus in Israel. And, you know, when you when you listen to their podcasts or you see the presentations, you know, you just, you don't hear the, the story of Jesus. You get all the nuance of people who understand the Hebrew history and understand the Jewish culture. And, and then they tie all these sub-elements from the word that we wouldn't get being Gentiles in t- back into the truth of it. And it's like they're on target on all these things. They're teaching Jesus correctly. And I just, I, I go back to even something on their website where they say, you know, we, we aren't about contention. I'm paraphrasing, but we're not about contention. Uh, we've, we've got a multicultural effort here. And by that, they mean there's Arabs and Jews working side by side, you know, mm-hmm. in this effort. But they, but they said, but the thing we agree on is that God took on flesh, you know, and this is like the message of the Book of Mormon that we've ignored, of course, but it's their, it's their mantra, it's their standard, it's their flag they're holding up that despite all of our differences, we see that God is the one who sacrificed himself for our sin. And, and that is so huge. I mean, how, what better way, you know, when it comes back, when it comes when they believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands, you know, it's like, that's about as pure as mm-hmm. uh, an idea as you can have, and they have it. <clears throat> Along this lines, Corey, um, you sent me a little text about it's neat to see when they come to know Jesus through their culture and their eyes and their, their background of how some of the traditions and things that they've done through the years takes on new meaning. And one of those you recently shared with me was the Cedar meal, Sadar. Oh, Seder, Seder. S-E-D-E-R, uh-huh. You want to speak about that a little bit? You you sent me a really neat insight that you had. Oh, yeah. Because we've just went through Easter, so how does that tie into resurrection, that meal? Well, the, you know, these Jews annually, uh, at least practicing Jews, uh, do an annual tradition of this Seder meal at Passover where every element of the meal is done out of tradition, but every element element of the meal has a symbolic meaning. And some of them they get and some of them they don't. Um, but here's here's one of them, and this is what jumped out at me. Uh, the, the One for Israel people talk about the Seder meal. You can go to their website and you can see this. I'll put a link to that video. That, that's today. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so part of the tradition is this matzah bread is broken and it's not all eaten, and, and it's interesting because the Jews break the bread, but then a portion of the bread is to be hidden, and it's we call it bread, but it's like just this, this wafer. It's unleavened. Um, unleavened, right? right. Unleavened. Right. And, and what, it, what happens is that it's secretly hidden somewhere in the house, and at the end of the meal, you know, and, and you kind of think the meal goes through time. The meal remembers their trials in the wilderness, and the meal commemorates basically all of the events of, of the, the celebration of, you know, 
the, being freed from Egypt and crossing the river and receiving the Holy Ghost or receiving the law, which we see now as parallels to this, the principles of the gospel, as we call it. But, but this idea that this matzah is broken and hidden, and then what the, and this is the interesting thing is the children are commissioned, not the adults, the children are commissioned to search the house and at the end of the meal, they're supposed to find this bread. And when they find this bread, they bring it back and everyone consumes the rest of the bread. Yeah. And it's called the afikoman, I believe. Is the never heard word. of that before. I've yeah. never heard of that before. And and the the beauty of this symbolism, and I don't think the people, even the one for Israel, they didn't bring this out. They were talking about it. But the the beauty, it's told in the Book of Mormon, is that the Jews who rejected Christ, I mean, that's breaking the bread, right? And he's... He's hidden from them. They don't know who the, who he is. But it isn't the adults who end up finding him. It's at the end of time, at the end of the meal, the children or the, the predecessors later of, or the, I mean, the, the, the green, great great grandchildren rather, of the Jews who killed Jesus, end up finding Jesus, mm-hmm. and then they bring him back, and everyone enjoys and they participate, and they all find this Christ, and it's not another Messiah. I mean, that has to be the greatest symbolism, I think, in the, in the entire meal. And they're they're living this, they're they're acting it out, and they're not understanding it right now. But right. someday they will. That no, it is the children of the ones who. You know, maybe they didn't pull the trigger, but they loaded the gun and they handed it to to the Romans. You know, to, to the people who had Jesus executed. Then they find that he was the Messiah. Their posterity, finds their posterity, it, and, right? And everybody yeah. rejoices. Exactly. Yeah, and that's <laughs> yeah. so cool. They they have a lot of symbolism that's really cool and neat. And but when you brought that out, that added bonus or that added insight, I thought that was really really telling and something to think about. So we'll we'll put a link. You can go and watch it. And uh, see what they say. Uh, there was something else on there I found. Oh, there's a LDS man who has a YouTube channel that is just really popular, like hundreds of thousands of views. But it's it's on, um, and most of them are not LDS; they're Christians because he he has these videos on Jesus, and and they're very well produced. I hadn't, I didn't know some of these things, but he, I watched one on the Passover since we've just gone through that season uh, of leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And one of the accounts of the Gospels really is even more on the timeline. But there's, I didn't know about Holy Week and everything that took place. Mm-hmm. But when you compare what Jesus was doing to the uh, events of Holy Week, how he lined it all up, and as he was riding into to Jerusalem, that was the same day that the, that the people were bringing in their lambs into the city that would be killed for the sacrifice days later. So that lines up. And here's one I never knew. I didn't know it was part of the, but on, and I'm not going to give the specific days, but on one day of the Holy Week, uh, the Jewish people would take their brooms and everything, and they would clean out the entire house, every single spot, to make sure there wasn't one speck of leaven yeah. or yeast left in the house. That was lining up with the same time Jesus was turning over the tables and cleaning out the temple from the Pharisees mm. for what they were polluting the Father's house. And I and I thought, isn't there a scripture that says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really neat. Wow. And, of course, the time of his crucifixion was the time they were bringing the lambs to the altar to kill them and to, and to uh, spill their blood mm. and how the lambs... 
they had to keep these lambs spotless without any broken bones or anything through this time after they've purchased the lambs. They're in the care of the family to make sure they're spotless when they're sacrificed and how even though the the two thieves had their bones broken on the cross that Jesus remained unbroken mm-hmm. even even till the end yeah, every element of his life patterned that wow. yeah and that's got to be uh telling and just fitting to the to the uh, house of Joseph to the house of Israel to the Jews when they see these things fulfilled and how much more they We'll probably bring to the table. I'm. Sure, I know they will. Oh yeah, yeah. How much more they'll bring, and and I think it's happening right now. Really, that revelation, the eye opening. You know, it's it's like the the Bible, the New Testament teaches that the, the Jews are blinded to the law of Moses. They don't understand what it pointed towards. But when their heart turns to Christ, they'll see these things. And it's like it's interesting how. The strongholds of our mind, it can happen in any generation. That that comment about, you know, it's in Second Corinthians, uh, about the, the Jews being blinded until they turn to Christ. It can happen in the Restoration. It, it is in the Restoration. It's in the LDS. It's in the RLDS that it, we're blinded to the truth when we hold on to these other ideas so so firmly. Um, but that's why the Scripture is given that if we if our heart turns to the Word, the written Word first, then we can come with clarity back to God and, and have that blindness removed. <clears throat> last time, uh, not last time, but we, uh, I think two times ago, it's hard because you, poor guy, you've been gone so much. <laughs> uh, we were, a couple episodes back, we were comparing doctrine in the Book of Mormon from um, Mosiah, um, let me pull it up here. Oops, wrong one. Mosiah and King Benjamin speaking uh, with doctrine of Abinadi speaking with Mormon and Moroni. It was pretty neat, Corey, for our uh, Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday sermon Jason Anderson preached. And for the scripture reading, instead of us looking up the scripture with him, he asked us to just uh, close our eyes and listen to the story and he spoke from King Benjamin and from Abinadi, and he says it's going to be a mishmash of scriptures, uh, but it was very clear. It was this continuity. I cannot find my words today. Uh, continuity. It was, mm-hmm. anyway, they all fit together. Mm-hmm. And he read about Jesus and his sacrifice and his plan uh, from those two places. And we've been looking at some of the similarities because um, I think we were answering some thoughts that uh, the Book of Mormon is not clear on the plan of redemption, and uh, we need the added insight uh, from the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, and, and so maybe we can't say the Book of Mormon is the standard because there's too many questions uh, maybe that aren't resolved. Uh, and so we went through some of these um, is this on your website, Restore Gospel? Uh, what are you referring to? Oh, this document you sent me. Uh, you may not even remember. It's just a, oh, it's the comparison chart of the three. <clears throat> oh, I, I don't know if it is or not. I, Maybe, I think it's an incomplete. I think you were doing it because uh, I think you just put it together for the sake of the podcast maybe. Mm-hmm. And so we won't put a link yet. But both of them taught the Ten Commandments and uh, – Oh yeah, that's something I've a work in progress, right. and there's there's a whole bunch more that I've actually found to to put in there. That's oh, okay. that's just the beginning of it. Well, know. let's 
let's take off where we uh, ended. I, I kind of remember that um, we we equate when we're talking about those without the law or whatever. We, we equate sometimes sinner with those who die in ignorance. And Mosiah talks about something that you were talking to me about, and that's willfully rebelling. Right. So speak to me what, what you see the difference between that compared to someone who's just unbelieving or has <clears throat> what it says dwindled in unbelief based on a culture and generational thing where they gave up on God. Yeah, those are the two terms that the Book of Mormon uses, and this is something that just jumped out at me recently. Uh, when people dwindle in unbelief, the, the Lamanites were an example earlier in their history where the, the parents may have uh, sinned and then people grow up without direction, with, without instruction. They're almost like people who died without the law. And their, their state was called dwindling in unbelief. They're living, but they're not believing. And I think we see a lot of people in our own day who, who are doing that. They don't really have a, the guidelines, you know. But willful rebellion is the term the Book of Mormon uses describing people who, who know the truth have, or at least have been exposed to the truth and now don't want any part of it. It's like a conscious decision. One is not a conscious decision, dwindling in unbelief, uh, but, but the conscious decision to willfully rebel, that's the serious state that the Book of Mormon describes. If you die in those sins, you're, you've made your decision. You know, this is this is the issue that confronts us all, is that we don't want to die willfully rebelling. Willful means our, our soul and heart is behind it. So um, you can search those words, and the Scripture results from that share really good information where yes. now you, you realize that, yeah, they were talking about the Lamanites when they dwindled in unbelief, and then they were talking about the Nephites when they willfully rebelled. And, and that's, I think, the difference between people who have, you know, yet to make their choice and people who have made their choice as well. Yeah, and it uh, gets into a cursing into three or four generations. That's the language in the scriptures at times. I've heard that explained uh, by the Bible Project in a great way that, that God doesn't, well, let's say my wife and I uh, fall into sin in some way, shape, or form, and we don't repent, and and God says, you know, the responsibility or the impact of that will will be will go on even to three or four generations, the yeah. third or fourth generation. And that doesn't mean if my son then takes on those sins or leads his life in a sinful way based on what he saw us do, it doesn't mean God's gonna punish him regardless. What what that's saying is when when a culture or a generation begins to become ungodly, that those ideas and attributes are passed down from generation to generation. And it's not that if someone repents, they're not given forgiveness for three or four generations. Certainly they're forgiven. It's that the ability to repent is really diminished and suppressed because of the wickedness. So we're seeing that in our society uh, right now, each generation for the last few is just getting more and more uh, rebellious and farther away from the truth. There's still people hopefully coming to Christ and seeing that this isn't right, but for the most part, for the culture, uh, this sin is being passed down from from generation. You know, the Book of Mormon is clear too. It, it's interesting the comment you made about <clears throat> earlier conversations you've had with with others about, oh well, maybe the Book of Mormon wasn't clear on the area, so we needed the Doctrine and Covenants to answer the question. No, I think the Book of Mormon is exactly clear, and it tells us everything we need to know in a clear, plain way. 
Uh, Abinadi in Mosiah 8.62 states, uh, those who have perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against God, and then it clarifies, that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them, these are they that have no part in the first resurrection. Now, what the Book of Mormon is specific on is it differentiates also the resurrection versus eternal life. It, it doesn't even it doesn't say they'll never have eternal life. The part the point is that this was in times BC, and the idea was that when Jesus was resurrected, he being the first, that the people who had been good would also be resurrected at that time. And that's that's not a point we dwell on much because we're beyond it now. It's something that happened historically. But to the writers of the Book of Mormon, especially in the Old Testament times of the Book of Mormon, in other words, before Jesus was alive and, and died and resurrected, they contemplated in their writings this day of resurrection when the bodies and souls would be united. So what Abinadi is saying is that, hey, the good people are going to have their bodies and souls re- reunited at the time when Jesus is. That's part of, that's part of the plan. And again, when he comes, you know, the millennium starts, there's a resurrection then. And that's why Alma says, hey, there might be a resurrection. There might be two, three, five. He said, I don't know the number. And, and he, he steers clear of that. But the point is that it's saying people who willfully rebelled are not rejoined at that time. But at the end, and no matter how many times that happens, you know, resurrections, at the end, at the final day, at the last day of the human race, at the end of the millennium, let's put it in those terms, we all stand before Christ and then we're judged. And is there a chance for repentance at some point along the way? Well, the Bible indicates, yeah, you know, Jesus preaches in the prison house. You know, the Book of Mormon doesn't go into it, but it doesn't have to. In that, the point is that in the end, there is just one reward or there's one punishment. And the works of your life either reflected that your heart changed or they reflect that it didn't change. And the point that it's making here is very specific, though. It's it's not saying they'll never have eternal life. It's saying they won't be part of the resurrection. Yeah. And let me <clears throat> let me bring this out, Corey. The Book of Mormon is plain and precious. I love those words, and I find that that is restated and reinforced over and over and over again. And it's only when we want to go deeper and try to weave in and out of what it's saying to uh, come up with caveats and what about this and what happens here and what about this person that didn't know this and uh, what does it mean to be valiant and all of these things. Uh, That gets a little bit nebulous and it gets a little bit tricky and it gets a lot more complicated. Uh, Even if you say that the Doctrine and Covenants is clear and that it gives very clear direction what happens, I would make this argument. It is not plain and precious. Yeah. And why, why do I say that? Because regardless of what you believe it's saying, it has allowed a whole faith culture to really take this idea of eternity and just go with it because of, of the way it's written, uh, that there's levels that there's a hierarchy, that there's certain things you can do to get to this place, that you can, you can be in heaven, but, but hopefully I use this correctly, but not exalted to the celestial part of heaven. Uh, all of that came. Now, whether we say we believe that or not, mm-hmm. all of that was allowed 
because of this section of Scripture. Exactly. Because it's not plain and precious. Now, we can debate, is it really saying that or not? But the fact that we can debate that makes me believe that it is not plain and precious. Now, when I read Mosiah, for instance, 862, mm-hmm. yea, even all those that have perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against God, that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them, these are they that have no part in the first resurrection. Yeah, That includes everybody in our church, everybody in the sound of my voice, any, everybody that has had an opportunity to read the Word of God in the Book of Mormon and pray about it and, and read the rest of His Word in the Scriptures. If you decide to rebel and if you are not born again and if you are not on that path of being born of the Spirit, being changed, you know, having that change in the inner part of your heart, uh, if you're not on that pathway, you're not doing good works. You're not, your works are not good. They're bad. Exactly. And you will not have part in the first resurrection. Yes. Uh, so this idea that, <clears throat> you know, we're selling a soft gospel or something that's, you know, too easy, you know, easy believism is just not true. Uh, we can theorize and have debates all day about, well, what about this person and that person? The reality is in our culture, in our existence here right now, we had better be on the pathway of being born again in our number one desire. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it's summed up so beautifully in, in just simple, simple words that I, I just want to share. This is a little bit more from Nephi, I'm sorry, Alma. Um, and when he... You know, again, we, we want to make all these different levels. And, and what he states is this. This is from uh, Alma 10. Um, uh, actually, it's Alma 9. Um, the, the question comes from Zizram, and, and we touched on this before, but it's worth bringing up. He, he says, hey, tell me about when all shall rise from the dead, both the just and the unjust. You know, this is the same question from the book of John that brought about Section 76. And then we get this kind of mind-numbing response of celestial, terrestrial, celestial, all these, all these conditions. And it just leaves you kind of wondering and your head wandering. But the same question in the Book of Mormon is answered. And it simply says this, he that will harden his heart, the same receives the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given a greater portion of the word until they know the mysteries of God, that they know them in full. And he that will harden his heart, he's given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. Nothing. Nothing. And in full. Exactly. And here's the dividing line. The word of God takes you closer to God or the or rejecting the word of God takes you away from God. Right. And, and, and that's the answer. So, Corey, it? when you have a glass of water and it's full, up to the rim, what happens when you pour another tablespoon of water into that? Yeah, it'll overflow. Right. So fullness means it's it's there. You've got everything. Yep. There's, you can't add anything more. And nothing, of course, means zero. Your exactly. glass is empty. It's not that they, they, they live in a place where your glass is going to be a quarter full forever. And it's, that's the trajectory that's we're the, on. It has yeah. to be. It has to be because that's the nature of God. Exactly. It's either, And see, what, what we don't realize is every living soul is on that trajectory. Either 
because of the word in us, it's taking us closer to God, or because we've rejected the word, we're getting more hardened in our hearts and we're moving away. And maybe we don't see the the wide spectrum that it leads to, but in the end, we're either on the right hand of God or we're not. And, and, And he concludes and says, then if our hearts have been hardened, yea, if we have hardened our hearts against the word, insomuch that it hath not been found in us, then will our state be awful, for then we mm-hmm. shall be condemned. We're, you and I are in a state where we have to consistently read the Word of God, uh, read what it says, uh, use that as our foundation. The Lord talks about uh, comparing the law of Moses in the Scriptures uh, that there will come a time when his Word and his law will be written in their hearts. Uh, I believe that's that born-again experience, that's that spiritual uh, being born again. Uh, when the apostles went out, they weren't referring to, uh, they, they weren't carrying their scriptures with them and preaching out of the scriptures. They were writing the scriptures. Mm. Where did that come from? Mm. That came from the law being written in their heart, the new gospel of Jesus Christ residing in them, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, the mind of God and his son Jesus being in them. And, and that's where we are heading when it says fullness is just uh, we don't have to we don't have to memorize and, and point you to words in a book and say this is who God is. It's it's changing where it's an intimate. Yeah, we like know that. Him. I we like know that. Him. I like that. So just a couple other scriptures on willfully rebelling. I like this one about uh, the Lamanites and Ishmaelites at the very beginning. Uh, this is Fourth Nephi one forty two. And it came to pass that they which rejected the gospel were called Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites, and they did not dwindle in unbelief, but they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ. Exactly. That's the difference. They had a chance to know it. Now, three or four generations later, uh, described as, you know, dwindling in unbelief when when people are brought up in a culture where that they're not being taught. Mm -hmm. Very... It's it's a clear distinction, and I'm glad we're discussing this because I think it helps, again, like you say, that this is the book that's called Plain. The Doctrine and Covenants isn't called Plain. The Bible isn't called Plain. I wish they were all plain, but this is where it lays it out. Uh, and, and so, again, we're, we're all kind of on this trajectory as well, and, and the, the hope is that we're not in the camp of people who willfully rebel. Let me read—it's uh, always the best when we read the— I think the scriptures right right from the word. I think this is Mormon one. Uh, the way it, it talks about the children of Christ are those who do not willfully rebel, mm-hmm. but willful rebellion can not be remedied by the atonement. Someone who knows to do better and chooses not is in willful rebellion. Those are your your summary. So let me read King Benjamin's words. This would be found in Mosiah one, I believe, or two. And now these are the words which King Benjamin desired of them, and therefore he said unto them, Ye have spoken the words that I desired, and the covenant which you have made is a righteous covenant. I believe the people were responding to the, to the preaching. Mm-hmm. And now because of the covenant which you have made, you shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and daughters. Remember the, the change in them? They didn't want any poor among them. They, re, they were responding. They were falling down. Oh, apply, is that where it says, apply the atoning blood right. of Christ? That's what he wanted to hear. You are the children of Christ, his sons and daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. 
right? Born again exactly. of the Spirit. Right. Oh, for you say that your hearts are changed, heart changed, born again, through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and daughters. We are having a Sunday school class on the character and nature of God. When it says faith, through faith on his name, you're changed. That understanding of who he is is so important. And why we continually pound and preach on, it's very important to know the nature of God um, in order that you may exercise faith and be born again. It's, it's all so close and tied together. In verse 10, and under this head ye are made free, and there is no other head whereby you can be made free. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Therefore, I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that you should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found where? At the right hand of God. For he shall know the name by which he is called. For he shall be called by the name of Christ. That is huge. It's huge. So if you're on the right hand, I'm not Mike Barrett. Mm-hmm. I'm Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not Corey Stark anymore. <laughs> you are Jesus. Yeah. You are completely cleansed and covered by his robe of righteousness. You know, and that's bringing it back to communion, that's what a communion service is. It's a celebration of those who <clears throat> who are, are called by the name of Christ. And it's like, you know, it's our it's our kind of our rally party that we're still in this life together. You know, when you die, it's like, hey, it, it's over. It's like, you know, you're you're on to other things. But for those people of us who remain, we're we're like coming together to say, hey, we remember that there is no hope without Christ. You know, the, the things that we've brought upon ourselves that don't really have any part of communion, you know, and I, I, I think we've both heard from time to time, you know, the little old lady standing up at a prayer service before communion saying, oh, I didn't do so good this last month, but I'll try to do better this month. And it's like, it's all this thing ter- that we've turned inward to ourselves when it's it's not really what it means. It's it's Yeah, there's an examination, I suppose, of your life, but the whole point is that you are called by this name of Christ, and you rally around the fact that you're called by this name of Christ, and it's the only name you can be called by. There isn't any other name. So what's the point? Is The, the point is that we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate that. Uh, um, <clears throat> the very last word or the very last scripture in this that I wanted to read on was verse 13, not the last, but the end of this thought process is this. And now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon them the name of Christ must be called by some other name. Therefore, he findeth himself on the left hand of God. Mm-hmm. So that's very clear to me. Uh, and he adds 14 and 15, which just without saying willful rebellion, it says, and you got to understand that this is the name that will never be blotted out except it be through transgression, your own transgression. Therefore, he's saying, don't transgress, don't willfully rebel, that the name isn't blotted out of our hearts. And this being on the right hand or left hand hinges in the, in the middle of this on spiritually begotten of God. Mm-hmm. Hearts changed. You've spiritually begotten you. He's spiritually begotten you. Your hearts have changed Yes, through faith on his name. That's believing understanding, hoping, 
that God truly is who he says he is, that he's mercy, that he's justice, that he's love, that he's long-suffering, that he's quick to forgive. Uh, as these, as this nature of God uh, just envelops you and washes over you and you become, you're living in that space that this is the man that's, cre- not the man, sorry, this is the God that's created me. Um, that's, that's how your heart's changed and you're born again. We, we really have to be working to cut out all of the noise around us and focused on who God is so that we can be born again and exercise faith in him. Amen. Amen. Um, I was looking to compare those that dwindled in unbelief. Uh, that one's... Okay. So Ether talks about this. And after that Christ truly had showed himself unto his people, he commanded that they should be made manifest. And now, after that, they have all dwindled in unbelief. There is none save it be the Lamanites, and they have rejected the gospel of Christ. Therefore I am commanded that I should hide them up again in the earth. That is the very end of the story, right? Right, right. And that's important because what he's talking about, they should be manifest, he's talking about the words of the brother of Jared, his experience that was hidden up from the people. These <clears throat> these words were so powerful. I mean, Jesus did not share them with the people when he came to visit them, at least as it's written. We don't have it. It was sealed up literally for us, These this brother of Jared experience. The, in, in other words, the people of the Nephites, um, unless they were leaning over Moroni's shoulder as he's tapping the last words in the record, they didn't get this brother Jared's story. It right. Was, it, it was something for us. You and know? I, and let, let me just contrast where those that dwindle in unbelief uh, are not written off, are not placed on the left hand of God for eternity. But, but perhaps in Second Nephi 11.83 it says, And after they shall have been brought down low in the dust, even they that are not, yet the words of the righteous shall be written. And we, the Book of Mormon and the prayers of the faithful shall be heard. One of those is Enos, right, when he prayed all night mm-hmm. that these words. And the prayers of the faithful shall be heard, and all they which have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got to correct something I just said. I, I, I reread this verse, and you were reading from uh, Ether chapter 1 around verse 95, and historically I, I, I was incorrect. This states, and I want to read it, verse 95. Um, actually, let me start in 94. Uh, the Lord commanded the brother of Jared to go down out of the mount from the presence of the Lord and write the things which he had seen. And they were forbidden to come unto the children of men until after that he should be lifted up on the cross. And then it states, And for this cause did King Benjamin keep them, that they should not come unto the world until after Christ should show himself unto his people. And... After that Christ had truly showed himself unto his people, he commanded that they should be manifest. So apparently, after Jesus came here, he did command that they were there. So I was incorrect in saying no one had them. Uh, I believe the people did have them, have them. But here's the problem, and it comes back into everything we've been saying. And now, after all that they've had, they're dwindling in unbelief. He's talking about this is the most powerful experience. It was shared by Jesus with the people after he had been with them. And even in spite of that, now they don't believe. 
you know, and it's it's the saddest state that they've been shown the most powerful things possible to know and understand, and yet they still deny it. Right. So the difference, <clears throat> we we really <laughs> we need to live in the space where we, if if we are are not on that pathway to to Jesus and being born again, then we are are not dwindling in unbelief, but perhaps willfully rebelling. Mm-hmm. God's the final judge of every heart, of every experience, of every person that's been placed, you know, here into the families they've been put in, into the experiences they've had in this this wicked world. Uh, be careful. I think we need to be very careful in judging one another because even though you were born into a church family, you're also born into a sinful world, and tragic and terrible things uh, happen to people that, that cause them to, um, you know, to stumble and to fall away from the Lord. So he's the ultimate judge, and, and, and we can't blanketly you know, make accusations or thoughts about people who have left the church or have done this or that. That's between God and them, and I believe uh, he is fair and just, and he will restore uh, everyone back to him that that will allow it to be done. Yeah, I believe that too. Well, brother, that's uh, that's been some good things, uh, positive things, I think. Do you have anything else to add well, this morning? I always look forward to our next conversation, but I'm always happy to know that we are here just walking each other home. All right. Until next time, God bless.